Section 5 of A Year with the Saints, translated by a member of the Order of Mercy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain, recording by Maria Therese. March. Mortification. Whoever will come after me, let him deny himself. Matthew 16.24 1. The first step to be taken by one who wishes to follow Christ is, according to our Lord's own words, that of renouncing himself, that is, his own senses, his own passions, his own will, his own judgment, and all the movements of nature, making to God a sacrifice of all these things and of all their acts, which are surely sacrifices very acceptable to the Lord. And we must never grow weary of this, for if any one, having, so to speak, one foot already in heaven, should abandon this exercise, when the time should come for him to put the other there, he would run much risk of being lost. St. Vincent de Paul The same saint made himself such a proficient in this virtue that it might be called the weapon most frequently and constantly handled by him through his whole life, until his last breath and by this he succeeded in gaining absolute dominion over all the movements of his interior nature. Therefore he kept his own passions so completely subject to reason that he could scarcely be known to have any. St. John Climacus says that the ancient fathers, even those who were most perfect, exercised themselves in many kinds of mortification and contempt. For they said that if they should give up training themselves because men thought them already consummate in virtue, they would come, in time, to abandon and lose that modesty and patience which they possessed, just as a field, though rich and fertile, if it be no longer cultivated, becomes unsightly and ends in producing only thorns and thistles. 2. The measure of our advancement in the spiritual life should be taken from the progress we make in the virtue of mortification, for it should be held as certain that the greater violence we shall do ourselves in mortification, the greater advance we shall make in perfection. St. Jerome When St. Francis Borgia heard it said that any one was a saint, he used to answer, He is if he is mortified. In this way he himself became so great a saint, for he exercised himself in mortification to such a degree that only that day seemed to him truly wretched in which he had not undergone some mortification either bodily or spiritually. When a young monk once asked an aged saint why among so many who aim at perfection so few are found perfect, he replied, Because in order to be perfect it is necessary to die wholly to one's own inclinations, and there are few who arrive at this. 3. It should be our principal business to conquer ourselves and, from day to day, to go on increasing in strength and perfection. Above all, however, it is necessary for us to strive to conquer our little temptations, such as fits of anger, suspicions, jealousies, envy, deceitfulness, vanity, attachments, and evil thoughts. For in this way we shall acquire strength to subdue greater ones. St. Francis de Sales A certain physiognomist, looking at Socrates, pronounced him to be inclined to dishonesty, gluttony, drunkenness, and many other vices. His disciples, being angry at this, wished to lay violent hands on the man who had spoken so ill of their master. But Socrates said, Be calm, for he has told the truth. I should have been just such a man as he describes, if I had not given myself to mortification. When an old monk was asked how he could bear the noise of some shepherd boys near him, he answered, I was at first inclined to say something to them, 
but I thought better of it, and said to myself, If I cannot endure so little as this, how shall I endure greater trials when they come to me? St. Francis Xavier acted in the same way on occasion, and said that we must not deceive ourselves, for whoever does not conquer himself in trifles will not be able to do so in greater matters. 4. He who allows himself to be ruled or guided by the lower and animal parts of his nature deserves to be called a beast rather than a man. St. Vincent de Paul Philip, Count of Nemours, after leading a very bad life, experienced on his deathbed wonderful contrition, so that he begged his confessor to have his body carried to the public square and left there, saying, I have lived like a dog, and like a dog I ought to die. 5. Whoever makes little account of exterior mortifications, alleging that the interior are more perfect, shows clearly that he is not mortified at all, either exteriorly or interiorly. St. Vincent de Paul This saint was always an enemy of his body, treating it with much austerity, chastising it with haircloth, iron chains, and leather belts armed with sharp points. Every morning on rising he took a severe discipline, a practice which he had begun before founding the congregation, and which he never omitted on account of the hardships of journeys, or in his convalescence from any illness, but on the contrary he took additional ones on special occasions. All his life he slept upon a simple straw bed, and always rose at the usual hour for the community, though he was generally the last of all to retire to rest, and though he often could not sleep more than two hours out of the night, on account of his infirmities. From this it frequently happened that he was much tormented during the day by drowsiness, which he would drive away by remaining on his feet, or in some uncomfortable posture, or by inflicting on himself some annoyance. Besides, he willingly bore great cold in winter, and great heat in summer, with other inconveniences. In a word, he embraced, or rather sought, all the sufferings he could, and was very careful never to allow any opportunity for mortifying himself to escape. A holy woman, being compelled by her husband to go to a ball, put dry mustard on her shoulders, which, in dancing, caused her such intense pain that she fainted several times, and had to be carried from the ballroom. St. Edmund, Archbishop of Canterbury, wore for thirty successive years a band of haircloth next to his skin, and always slept on the floor, without pillow or coverlet. St. Louis, King of France, constantly chastised his body with fast and haircloth. St. Casimir, son of the King of Poland, did the same, and also slept on the bare ground. St. Margaret, Queen of Scotland, as well as St. Cajetan, often used the discipline during whole nights. Finally, there can be found among the confessors no saint, either man or woman, who did not have great love for exterior mortifications, and who did not practice them as much as possible. 6. Mortification of the appetite is the ABC of spiritual life. Whoever cannot control himself in this will hardly be able to conquer temptations more difficult to subdue. St. Vincent de Paul This saint had, by long habit, so mortified his sense of taste that he never gave a sign of being pleased with anything, but took indifferently all that was given him however insipid or ill-cooked it might be, and so little did he regard what he was eating, that when a couple of raw eggs were once set before him by mistake, he ate them without taking the least notice. He always seemed to go to the table unwillingly, and only from necessity, eating always with great moderation, and with a view solely to the glory of God. 
nor did he ever leave the table without having mortified himself in some way, either as to quantity or quality. For many years, too, he kept a bitter powder to mix with his food, and he usually ate so little that he frequently fainted from weakness. The Empress Leonora was remarkable for this virtue. Her usual dinner was of herbs, pulse, and other foods of the poor, always the same both in kind and quantity. She had four dishes at dinner and three at supper, frequently setting aside some of them for no reason except that they pleased her, and if these dishes came to the table covered with pastry or other delicacies used by the rich, they always went back whole and untouched. When she was at the emperor's table or at formal banquets, she spent the time in cutting into the smallest bits whatever was placed before her. Then, when another course was brought, she sent away the first without having tasted it, and went on as before. When she ate apples baked in the ashes, she never peeled them, but ate them with whatever ashes were upon them. On Fridays she lived on bread and water, alone, in memory of the Redeemer's passion. She bore the most parching thirst on the hottest summer days, without permitting even a sip of water to pass her burning lips. St. Elizabeth, Queen of Portugal, fasted on bread and water about half the year. St. Francis Xavier waged constant and lasting war against his appetite, so that he never took food or drink for pleasure, but from pure necessity, nor did he ever take as much as he desired, even of bread. St. Edmund of Canterbury never ate either meat or fish, but only bread and other common food, and suffered so much from thirst that his lips chapped. The blessed Enrico Suzone drank nothing for six successive months, and in order to feel thirst more acutely, he ate salt food, and then going to a stream, he bent his head down close to its surface, yet without allowing his lips to touch it. The blessed Joanna of St. Damien practiced such great austerities in regard to food that she was entreated by the other nuns to moderate them. But she answered, I am sorry that I cannot feed this body of mine on straw. I know how much harm liberty does to it, and I thank God who has given me this knowledge. When St. Mary Magdalene de Pazzi was seriously ill, extremely weak and suffering from nausea, if she happened to think of any kind of food which would please her, she considered it a fault to ask for it or allude to it, and carefully abstained from doing so. The blessed Jacopone, having one day a desire for meat, bought a piece. He hung it up in his room and kept it until it was spoiled. Then he had it cooked and ate it with unspeakable disgust. By a long and constant habit of abstinence and mortification, St. Anselm became unable to perceive the taste of food. It was the same with St. Bernard, who for that reason drank oil one day instead of wine, without perceiving it at all and he reached such a point that going to the table seemed to him a kind of torture. St. Teresa said that she experienced a similar difficulty in eating, and St. Isidore suffered from it so excessively that he could not go to the table without tears, and the command of his superior was needed to force him to take some nourishment. 7. One of the things that keeps us at a distance from perfection is, without doubt, our tongue. For when one has gone so far as to commit no faults in speaking, the Holy Spirit himself assures us that he is perfect. And since the worst way of speaking is to speak too much, speak little and well, little and gently, little and simply, little and charitably, little and amiably. St. Francis de Sales St. Ignatius Loyola governed his tongue so well that his speech was simple, grave, considerate, and brief. 
St. John Birchman's was a man of few words, and so considerate in his speech that there was never heard from his mouth an idle word, one contrary to rule, one that was neither necessary, useful, nor directed to any good purpose. Being once asked by a brother novice how he managed never to commit a fault in speaking, he replied thus, I never say anything without first considering it and recommending it to God, that I may say nothing which can displease him. Besides, he was never observed to violate silence, and when asked how he could keep this rule so perfectly, he answered, This is the way I do. I salute humbly all those I meet. If anyone asks any service of me, I show the greatest readiness to render it. If anyone asks me a question, I listen and answer briefly, and I avoid saying a single superfluous word. St. Vincent de Paul made himself so completely master of his tongue that useless or superfluous words were rarely heard from his mouth, and never a single one inconsiderate, contrary to charity, or such as might savor of vanity, flattery, or ostentation. It often happened that after opening his mouth to say something unusual that came into his mind, he closed it suddenly, stifling the words, and apparently reflecting in his own heart, and considering before God whether it was expedient to say them. He then continued to speak, not according to his inclination, for he had none, but as he felt sure, would be most pleasing to God. When anything was told him which he already knew, he listened with attention, giving no sign of having heard it before. He did this to mortify self-love, which always makes us desire to prove that we know as much as others. When insult, reproach, or wrong of any kind was inflicted upon him, he never opened his lips to complain, to justify himself, or to repel the injury. But he recollected himself, and placed all his strength in silence and patience, blessing in his heart those who had ill-treated him, and praying for them. When he found himself overwhelmed with excessive work, he did not complain. But his ordinary words were, Blessed be God, we must accept willingly all that he deigns to send us. St. Aloysius Gonzaga, when about to converse with anyone, fervently repeated this prayer, Pone Domine, Custodium Ori Meo, etc. Set a watch, O Lord, before my lips, etc. A certain virgin once observed silence from the festival of the Holy Cross in September until Christmas with such rigor that in all that time she did not speak one word. This mortification was so pleasing to God that it was revealed to a holy soul that as a reward for this she should never pass through purgatory. Among the lofty eulogiums that St. Jerome bestows upon his pupil St. Paula is this, that she was as cautious in speaking as she was ready to listen. 8. It is a common doctrine of the saints that one of the principal means of leading a good and exemplary life is modesty and custody of the eyes. For, as there is nothing so adapted to preserve devotion in a soul, and to cause compunction and edification in others, as this modesty, so there is nothing which so much exposes a person to relaxation and scandals as its opposite. Rodriguez In his life of St. Bernard, Sirius relates that when Pope Innocent III went with his cardinals to visit Clairvaux, the saint, with all his monks, came out to meet him but with such a modest and composed exterior, as moved to compunction the cardinals and the pope himself. For they were astonished that on such a festival, and such an unusual and solemn occasion of rejoicing, they all kept their eyes cast down and fastened upon the ground, without turning them in any direction, and that while all were gazing at them, they looked at no one. He also tells of St. Bernard, 
that he practised custody of the eyes to such a degree that after years of vitiate he did not know how the ceiling of his cell was made whether it was arched or flat that he always believed there was one window in the church oh there were three that he walked one day with his companions on the shore of a lake without knowing it was there so that when they were speaking of the lake in the evening he asked where they had seen it it is narrated of st bernardine of siena that his modesty was so great that his mere presence acted as a restraint upon his companions so that if one only said bernardine is coming they would check themselves immediately Surius also tells in his life of st lucian the martyr that the heathens were converted and became christians by merely looking upon him on account of his composure and modesty the blessed clara de montefalco never raised her eyes to the face of any one with whom she was speaking when she was asked by a monk the reason of this she answered as we speak only with the tongue what need is there of looking in the face of the person we are talking with st john birchman's was greatly to be admired for mortification of the eyes he would never turn to look at anything however new and unexpected it might be and even a noise behind him would never cause him to turn natural as it is to do so happening to be present one day at a college exhibition he took a seat on a bench and remained motionless without ever raising his eyes and with so much recollection that a nobleman who occupied the next seat was amazed and said this father must be a saint there are on the other hand innumerable instances of those who have become relaxed in a cause of scandal through want of custody of the eyes it will be enough to cite the example of david who by a simple unguarded glance prompted by curiosity was suddenly changed from a great saint into a great sinner the scandal of his whole kingdom nine believe me that the mortification of the senses in seeing hearing and speaking is worth much more than wearing chains or haircloth st francis de sales it is known of st catherine of siena that while her family were celebrating the carnival in their house she was not willing to join them protesting that as she had no other love so she had no other pleasure but in her jesus he then appeared to her in company with the blessed virgin and other saints and espoused her with so much clearness and certainty that the dominicans by apostolic indulgence celebrated the festival in commemoration of it on the last day of the carnival a very devout penitent of his once confessed to st francis xavier that she had looked upon a man with more tenderness than was suitable the saint closed what he had to say to her with these words you are unworthy to have god look upon you since for the sake of looking upon a man you do not regard the risk of losing god this was enough for during the rest of her life she never again turned her eyes towards any man the empress leonora almost always kept her eyes down and raised them only when she was welcomed by monks or nuns to their houses she returned their salutations courteously with a cheerful countenance and a kind smile when present at the theatre to which she was obliged to go she rarely glanced at the splendid gathering of the nobility or at the superb scenes which succeeded each other with views of gardens forests and palaces in perspective she spent all this time with her mind in heaven contemplating the delights of paradise and reciting psalms which to avoid notice she had bound in the same style as the books of the plays so that she seemed to every one very attentive to the play while she was in reality enjoying a very different sight st vincent de paul practised continual mortification of the senses depriving them even of lawful gratifications 
and often inflicting on them voluntary sufferings. When he was traveling, instead of allowing his eyes to wander over the country, he usually kept them on his crucifix. When walking in the city, he went with eyes cast down or closed that he might see God alone. Visiting the palaces of the nobility, he did not look at the tapestry or other beautiful objects, but remained with downcast glance and full of recollection. He practiced the same thing in the churches, never raising his eyes except to behold the blessed sacrament, not to look at the decorations, however beautiful they might be. He was never seen to gather flowers in the gardens or take up anything that was pleasing to the sense of smell. On the contrary, he greatly enjoyed remaining in places where there was an unpleasant odor, such as hospitals and the houses of the sick poor. His tongue he employed only in praise of God and virtue, in opposing vice and in consoling, instructing, and edifying his neighbor. His ears he opened only to discourse, which tended to good, for it gave him pain to hear news and worldly talk, and he made every effort to avoid listening to what would delight the hearing without profit to the soul. When a penitent, who was somewhat reckless in his speech, asked his director for a hair shirt to mortify the flesh, My son, said the priest, laying his finger upon his lips, the best hair shirt is to watch carefully all that comes out at this door. St. Aloysius Gonzaga was admirable for mortification of the eyes, for it is narrated in his life that he never looked any woman in the face. After he had served the empress as page for two years, a report was spread that she was coming into Italy, where he happened to be, and some congratulated him on the prospect of seeing his mistress again. But he replied, I shall not recognize her except by her voice, for I do not know her face. His rare mortification was well rewarded by God even in his life, for he was never attacked by temptations of the flesh. 10. There are some so much inclined to mortify themselves that they take care to find in everything some means of mortification. What a beautiful practice is this, and of how much advantage! St. Alphonsus Rodriguez Sister Joanna Maria of the Trinity, a discalced Carmelite, had this excellent custom of seeking and finding mortification in everything, and so she always selected what was most insipid in food, poorest in clothing and shelter, most laborious in work, most unpleasant matters of inclination. In a word, she always chose what was most inconvenient and disagreeable for herself, seeking in all things only the pleasure, honor, and glory of God. St. Francis Borgia also made much use of the same practice. He wore pebbles in his shoes, slept little at night, when walking in the sun in summer, he remained out as long as possible. He swallowed medicine slowly, and chewed pills, that he might keep them longer in his mouth. 11. Upon interior mortification depends the right adjustment of our whole exterior, its arrangement with most perfection, with most sweetness and peace. St. Teresa St. Philip Neri, when anyone asked him what he should do to become a saint, used to put his hand to his forehead, saying, Give me those four fingers, and I will make you a saint, meaning that all sanctity depends on denying one's own will and one's own judgment. And to a penitent who often asked permission to take the discipline, he once gave this answer, How are the shoulders to blame if the head is hard? 12. Our profit does not depend so much upon mortifying ourselves as upon knowing how to mortify ourselves, that is, upon knowing how to choose the best mortifications, which are those most repugnant to our natural inclinations. Some are inclined to disciplines and fasts, 
and though they be difficult things, they embrace them with fervor, and practice them gladly and easily, on account of this leaning which they have towards them. But then they will be so sensitive in regard to reputation and honor, that the least ridicule, disapproval, or slight is sufficient to throw them into a state of impatience and perturbation, and to give rise to such complaints as show an equal want of peace and reason. These are the mortifications which they ought to embrace with the greatest readiness, if they wish to make progress. St. Francis de Sales The Venerable Monsignor de Palafox understood this doctrine well, for he said that the reason why he had never advanced in virtue was that he had never taken special pains to avoid all that was most conformed to his inclinations. Whoever, then, perceives in himself any disposition to contradict, for example, or to rely on his own judgment, and is not very attentive to combat, and to keep at a distance from all that can entice or subject him to it, will not only fail to go forward, but will go backward, and perhaps so far backward as to arrive at his own ruin. A religious, who was a priest, having been chosen as assistant to the cook, experienced the greatest repugnance and temptations in regard to this charge. To conquer himself, he made a vow before a crucifix to remain in this office all his life, if the superiors should be willing. Through this and similar victories, he arrived at such perfection as to be able to say that he believed no work could be offered to him, however repugnant to the senses, that he could not do, by the help of God, with perfect ease. 13. The mortifications which come to us from God, or from men by his permission, are always worth more than those which are the children of our own will, for it must be considered a general rule, that the less our taste and choice intervene in our actions, the more they will have of goodness, solidity, devotion, the pleasure of God, and our own profit. St. Francis de Sales Adolphus, Count of Alsace, having entered the order of St. Francis, was one day collecting alms in the form of milk, when he met his sons, and felt ashamed of his occupation. Then, instantly recollecting himself, he emptied the can of milk upon his head, saying, Unhappy one, thou art ashamed of the poverty of Jesus Christ. Let them see now what thou art carrying. After that, he suffered no more from any similar temptation. It is narrated in the lives of the fathers that an old solitary, who had heard the certain virtue of a certain youthful monk greatly praised, resolved to test it. For this purpose he went to the monk's cell, and entering the garden, which he found well cultivated and in excellent order, he began, as if in sport, to break down with his staff all the herbs and plants which were there, not leaving any untouched. Afterwards, according to the custom of the monks, they began to recite psalms together, and when this was ended, the youth, with a cheerful and modest air, asked the old man if he would like to have him prepare such of the herbs as were left for his repast. Astonished at such an invitation, he, for answer, threw his arms around his neck, exclaiming, Now I see, my son, that you are truly dead to your inclinations, as was told me. 14. The more one mortifies his natural inclinations, the more he becomes capable of receiving the divine inspirations, and the more he gains in virtue. St. Francis de Sales The celebrated Father Lanes, one of the companions of St. Ignatius, by means of this practice, arrived at great purity of mind and imperturbable tranquility of soul. St. Philip Neri made great use of this practice, both with his penitents and for himself. 
one example out of many will suffice. A nobleman of high rank had a dog named Capriccio, of which he was very fond. One morning an attendant of his brought the dog with him to the lodging of St. Philip, who, on seeing him, caressed him a little. Upon this the dog took such a fancy to him that he could not in any way be persuaded to leave him. He was again and again sent back to his master, who had him kindly treated and kept tied up for a while, but immediately on being released he would go back to the saint's rooms, so that finally they were obliged to let him remain there. St. Philip afterwards made much use of this dog for his own mortification and that of his spiritual children. Sometimes he made them wash and comb him, sometimes carry him in their arms or lead him by a chain to the streets of Rome, and he himself would walk with them. These and similar mortifications lasted for a space of fifteen years. 15. The greater part of Christians usually practice incision instead of circumcision. They will make a cut indeed in the diseased part, but as for employing the knife of circumcision to take away whatever is superfluous from the heart, few go so far. St. Francis de Sales The example of the venerable sister Francesca Farnese confirms this truth. Immediately after her profession, she began to yield to relaxation, into which she fell so far that she cared for nothing except vain ornaments and dress, flirting, remaining all day at the grate, and, finally, covering the walls of her cell with hangings and mirrors. She was many times warned, corrected, and sharply reproved by her superior, her confessor, and, above all, by a nun who was her aunt. She felt and understood the force of these admonitions and reproofs, and often formed good resolutions. She even put them in practice by taking off her vain ornaments, abandoning the grate, and breaking and throwing from the windows her mirrors and tapestry. But a little while after, she went back again to all these things, and became as she was before. These miserable alternations lasted for a long time, and might have continued for her whole life, as the reforms which she made were nothing more than incisions. But, happily, the divine mercy was pleased to stir her heart by a strong inspiration, so that, unable to resist the reproaches of her own conscience, she had courage to make a true circumcision, by leaving not only all vain amusements, but also by forming for herself a rule more rigorous than her own, and so well planned that it made her foundress of a new order, in which she spent the rest of her life, in an exemplary manner, and died in the odor of sanctity as is sufficiently proved by the fact that her body remained unchanged for many years. Somewhat different was the career of St. Paula, who, as St. Jerome relates, even from her earliest years, undertook to practice a true circumcision of the heart, and with increasing age applied herself to it more and more, cutting off and retrenching on all sides whatever seemed superfluous or beyond what was suited to her state. So, while her husband was living, she led a life so well regulated and dutiful that she was an example to all the matrons of Rome, and no one ever dared to charge her with the slightest air. But when she was free from the restraints of the world, after God took away her husband, she began a most austere life, and never wavered in it until death. She no longer slept upon a mattress, but upon the bare ground, covered only with haircloth. Indeed, she slept but little for she passed almost the whole night in prayers and tears. She chastised her body with rigorous fasts and very severe disciplines, without stint or mercy. In confessing her slightest faults, she shed so many tears that anyone who did not know her 
might have supposed her guilty of the gravest offences, and when she was entreated not to weep so much, that she might preserve her sight for reading, and not to practice so many austerities and penances, that she might not wholly lose her health. No, she replied, with all reason should this face be disfigured, which I have so often beautified with washes contrary to the precept of the Lord, this body ought, indeed, to be afflicted, which has enjoyed so many delights. Long laughter ought to be compensated for by continual weeping. Rich and delicate garments ought to be changed into hair-cloth. For I, who have taken so much pains to please the world, now desire to please God. Thus she spoke, and acted, in reparation for the disorders of her past life, which, nevertheless, had been most circumspect and modest. End of section 5